0: Oh, great to have you with me. I'm Aaron Noonan. This is the V8 Sleuth Podcast, powered by Repco. If you're a long-time listener, thanks for tuning in. If you're a first-time or a short-time listener, thanks for tuning in as well. There's plenty of episodes in the back catalogue for you to go through, but don't go to the back catalogue now. Stay with me here because... My guest on this week's pod is a man who has raced and led the Indianapolis 500. He's raced the top level of NASCAR cup racing. He's raced in sports cars and driven a heap of iconic Formula One cars as well. James Davison is my guest on the podcast today. And I chatted to him over Zoom recently and he shared some amazing stories, like the time that he wheeled and dealed of how he got his first IndyCar drive, including how Zach Brown, now the head of the McLaren Formula 1 team, was involved in backing him into that ride. He talks about the amazing lengths he's gone to to make deals happen, his ties to some famous names, and how sometimes shared cab rides can lead to finding racing backers. We talked to about some of the frenzies made along the way, including none other than the reigning Formula One world champion, Max Verstappen. And of course, I get James to tackle your National Motor Racing Museum Couch Racer questions as well. So here we go. Buckle up. It's time to start James Davison on the V8 Sleuth podcast, powered by Repco. Well, James Davison, you are perhaps Australia's greatest motorsport export secret, and I mean that in a good way. We've got so much to chat about here, mate, but I don't think a lot of our listeners understand quite what you've been up to for the best part of the last 15 years since you moved yourself to the United States. Indy 500, NASCAR racing, sports car racing, historic Formula One cars. We'd be here all day running through uh, what you've done, so let's talk to you about what you've done, but more importantly, mate, how you've done it. It's an amazing story, and I wanted to tell it with you on this episode of the podcast. But you are, would you say that you're the ultimate example of persistence in, in motor racing?
1: Well, I think it's for other people to say that. But look, I've just given life my best shot. I have been in America now for 18 years, and I showed up there when I was 18 years old. So I've spent half of my life and my entire adulthood chasing the American dream with limited uh, means to get to that elite level. Um, As we all know, it's extremely challenging, difficult, near impossible to make it to the elite levels of motorsport. Uh, It's always... You know, being financially reliant, but maybe in recent decades it's become more difficult with the evaporation of the tobacco money and just the world having more choices for entertainment. But I just put my heart and soul into my dream. And it actually all started where I am right here on the Gold Coast, going to the IndyCar race here in the late nineties in ninety-eight. And seeing IndyCar racing in its heyday, although I was from Melbourne and saw F1 in its heyday as well in that same period, I just loved the Americana and the series that CART was back then, and 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 chased the dream from from a young age. Um, it, w- it I've had many ups and downs, I guess, as everyone does in life. Um, I'm kind of mind blown myself that I was able to make it this far and achieve some of the things that I did. But in the end it it felt right given the amount of work that I put in behind the scenes. And that's everything from your craft on track and practicing and eye racing and surrounding yourself with with good people, mentors, if it was someone like Will Power involuntarily. We were friends, but he was involuntarily a mentor to me. And yeah, networking, uh, that's just so important to try and put the whole financial equation that enables you to go racing on the track. And all of it is just as important as um, each other driving or putting the funding together and uh, perseverance and just really wanting it, Uh, that Aussie grit, I guess. There's a lot to be said for it. It's not a coincidence that there's a number of talents worldwide, even domestically, they are world talents, Aussies and Kiwis. Just given how tough it is for us, how far away we are, um, how tough our scene is here, how little our dollar's worth. We, we just have to fight for everything that we earn. Uh, but in the long run, it really serves us well.
0: Mate, the, your body of work would be testament to that. So I, I remember you as a young guy, of course, your, your dad, John, was the promoter at Sandown for, for so many years. I think there's some photos somewhere of you as a a very little fellow with your brother Charles on the podium there. I think there's some great video too of you, I think you're about six, cracking a champagne bottle and starting to spray it as the rest of the podium finishes in the Sandown 500 are doing. And your dad grabs you and stops you from doing it. So you had this urge to want to get among it in in motor racing from a very young age. I remember you too when you started Formula Ford in Australia, but you really didn't race much here at all before you, you, you left our shores.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, grew up going to the races at Sandown and being around V8s in that golden era, the late 90s and early 2000s. You know what I'm talking about. It was just so exciting back then. And um, yeah, my dad bought my brother and I these little mini Shell DJR suits. I'm not sure how old we were. Yeah, maybe between five and 10 years old. And we would... (laughs) stand on the podium with the V8 drivers at the end of the Sandown 500. And my dad actually got champagne bottles, especially for my brother and I to spray along with the drivers. Oh, it was hilarious. I think my dad even had a bottle himself as the promoter. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, there is a photo in the back of Auto Action or something. And you can see my brother or I with our little... Dick Johnson or John Bow suits, but, um, yeah, they were such great memories. Oh my God. And yeah, that's, that's where it all started. And, uh, I did one year of go-karting in 98, uh, against Jack Perkins and Tim Blanchard, Shane Price, obviously guys that are raced in V8s. And, um, my father was reluctant to get me into racing for a number of reasons. He knew how hard it was. It had killed his father, my grandfather. Obviously, a different era, mid '60s. You know, the cars were there were no safety at all. But it 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 had been, although it had been, um, you know, provided some 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 good times in my family. It also had uh, had some challenges, and um, my dad just didn't want to induce me into a A world of frustration and he always brought to my attention an article that he read written by Jackie Stewart about how so many young kids who have their dream broken by the time they're the age of 20 or you know early 20s Riding, it's so difficult to come off the magic carpet ride where you're traveling around and on, you know, aeroplanes and seeing parts of the world and just the ultimate privilege as a, as a young male driving racing cars. And then all of a sudden when the music stops and, and obviously it's all reliant on funding, it's so difficult to be able to come off that without being bitter and hating the world. Um, and my dad was extremely aware of that and hesitant to get me involved in racing. But the, the kid in me, the, the young boy in me, the, the young puppy I was, I just absolutely loved racing and I just pounded him and hounded him. And eventually After not racing karts for five years, when I was 17, he let me do Formula Ford in my final year of school, of all times to allow me to do it. But I think my father saw how much I wanted to do it and that it would be a fun journey for us to both travel on together. And, yeah, I look back on it. Like I said, it all started here on the Gold Coast. I remember sitting with my dad in the, in the corporate facility above the pits and just talking about it, like him asking me, is this really what you want to do? And um, I said, yes. And so, yeah, we came over to the States to an IndyCar race and saw the junior formulas and, all right, we're going to give this a go. Everyone's gone to Europe, but we're going to go to America and try and race our way up. Develop our way up to IndyCar. We know we don't have the finances, but we're going to give it a shot. And just, you got to be in it to win it. And that's what we did.
0: So you went from Formula Ford Australia, Formula BMW, uh, Atlantics. Uh, at this point, is this a case where I remember the Atlantic deal was with Team Australia and it, and it turned to muck? Um, that was one of the first challenges that you you had to overcome. Did it come to a point about then where your dad went, hey, mate, I'm kind of tapped out here. I've spent all I can spend. If you want to pursue this, you're going to have to carry it on further. Was it about that point where this is 2006, seven into eight around that time?
1: Yeah. So uh, my dad always stretched himself to, to get where we were, but basically what a big development was was Getting over to America in short order, it would have served me well to do a season of national formula Ford with Sonic. I'd just done a season of state series showed that I had some ability. I got a pole and a win, but I I was learning really because I hadn't done those, you know, five, 10 years of cards, but I was learning on the fly. And so we quickly made the decision, yeah, to go to formula BMW and winning at the US Grand Prix in front of F1 with a full uh, grid of cars. That was very big in gaining support from the Australian Motorsport Foundation. Um, And after that and the Team Australia deal, that was a tough year. I was still a teenager. I was just out of Formula BMW racing against guys that had done British F3 and World Series by Renault. They were a few years older than me, um, driven some high-performance cars. That was a tough year for me. But by the end of the year, I was able to match Pagino, who was my teammate, and beat him in, I think, the final race that I did. Um, and, and then made it a sidestep over to the Indy Pro 2000. Um, it was called Star Mazda or Star Mazda back then. Um And just kind of get my confidence, um, win some races, and then look to try and move up from there. Plus, financially, it it just worked as well because it was we got a very good deal with the teams. Honestly, all the teams that we drove for—that's the only way we were able to make it work by getting good deals and the Australian Motorsport Foundation behind us, and that helped me move on to Indy Lights. I had a good. Not a great first season, but got a pole, a win, and a second place. And that is when, at the end of two thousand and eight, my dad was completely tapped. There's nothing he could do uh, more for me, even though we were getting deals for like a third of a budget and getting support from the found Motorsport Foundation. Yeah, we we were tapped, and um, I guess it's 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 not. Uncommon knowledge that I dated the daughter of the family that owned IndyCar. (laughs) You
0: beat me to where I was going next, James. Because there are there are some who would say that that was just a convenient thing that happened. That you date Lauren George, Tony George's daughter, Tony, the head of the Indy Racing League that became the IndyCar Series, the Indy Motor Speedway. Uh, Some would say that that was part of your grand
1: plan, but uh, I'm sure that one didn't pop up along the way. It just happened that way. Uh, it was pretty funny, to be honest. Um, just all, all the IndyCar drivers, like Frank Heady and Dan Weldon, every time they'd see me in the paddock, they'd just laugh. I, I remember Dan Weldon always saying to me, keep dating that girl, bro. Keep dating that girl. <laughs> but any, uh, like all jokes aside, I I had uh, a genuine relationship with Lauren for a year and a half. Um, I lived with the family. They looked after me and we achieved some great things together. They ran an Indy Lights car for me. And we finished second in the championship between the two Andretti cars ahead of all the Schmidt, what what's now called Arrow McLaren team, and and yeah, there were twenty eight cars in Indy Lights back then, um, and honestly, everything was, uh, you know, on on par to be in IndyCar that next year in twenty ten, and then the global financial crisis hit, and honestly, it was just bad timing. There's no more to say than that. The the IndyCar team, the Indy Lights team, all the private planes, everything all stopped at the end of that year with the George family. Um, any other year, any other occasion, I was going to have that seat in IndyCar that next year. But I'm one of a hundred or thousands of cases, right, of everyone that could have, would have, should if the timing worked out. But I needed to just face the music. For the next four years, in summary, they were very challenging. I didn't know what I needed to do exactly to try and get out of this impossible hole it seemed like to find millions of dollars to go indie car racing. Guys that I'd beaten in Indy Lights, in the championship Hinchcliffe Kimball they were moving into IndyCar driving for the top teams they had the money behind them I didn't and you know that quickly uh, I learned as a young man um, or over a number of years to be fair that I had to stop being frustrated and bitter and just put my energy into what I could control and um, so I started doing a little bit of sports car racing and drove in the Grand Am series um, in the Daytona prototypes and, um, yeah, ran in the top three there, but the phone would never ring on Monday because you just, it, it started to move into that kind of modern era where the teams just don't have the funding to and sponsorship to be running you unless you bring it along. Uh, So, yeah, um, well, I started racing everything. I drove in the uh, F5000 Tasman Revival Race at the Australian Grand Prix. I drove in the Carrera Cup Race. Um, What else did I do? I drove in, yeah, Grand Am DP and GT. Uh, There's probably a, a couple of things that I can't even remember. But by persevering and just keeping myself around the IndyCar paddock, I picked up a coaching gig coaching this Venezuelan woman called Milka Duno. (laughs)
0: Remember her well. And I I think a few IndyCar drivers remember her well too.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. It was a very bizarre situation. I mean, basically she was a woman, I think, in her late 30s, early 40s that, yeah, looked like a Miss Universe kind of, you know, belly dancer, uh, had all the lady lumps, everything, and she was an IndyCar driver. And, uh She was backed by the same uh, Venezuelan oil company that Pastor Maldonado was, uh, Citgo PDVSA, PDVSA they call it, and it created an opportunity for me to coach her throughout the whole IndyCar, a whole IndyCar season, and she was driving for Dale Coyne, and that enabled me to build a relationship with Dale Coyne, and long story short um a couple of years later Dale called me and he said hey I've got my second IndyCar seat open for mid-ohio have you got X amount of sponsorship and it was a killer deal it was 20 percent <laughs> of a budget and I still didn't even have that but I managed to just piece it together I got Zach Brown before he was Mr Mclaren he was just marketing was the name of his company. Um, Tony George, a couple of gentlemen drivers that I'd coached, to just all kind of chip in ten k each, and all of a sudden, here's my IndyCar debut. I had maybe two or three weeks' notice. I hadn't done Indy Lights in four years. I had no race fitness. Um, <laughs> obviously, I'm racing against guys that are champions that are being. De- racing IndyCar for 10, 15 years, XF1 guys. But I put my heart and soul into this and I did everything I could to try and get fit in the gym. It obviously didn't replicate the race fitness for the car. I was hurting in practice. (laughs) I really was like, oh my God, it was at mid Ohio with no power steering and how busy it is. And in the middle of the summer with the heat and everything, I I had my work cut out for me and uh, fortunately I had Justin Wilson as a teammate and he was just amazing to, to work with just the ultimate gentleman and gentle giant that he was nicknamed. That's truly how he was and was uh, very helpful, gave me a very good baseline setup, even though we weren't, you know, one of the top teams, we were more a mid-range team, underfunded, right? Dale Coin Racing's kind of always been the Minardi of IndyCar racing. Um, but, of course, everyone's got equal chassis for the most part in IndyCar. So, yeah, throughout practice, I was P20 and just thinking, oh, man, like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. Like, I just feel like I'm doing everything I can, but I'm just P20 in every session. and that I just needed time. And I just kept my head down and come qualifying. I did executed some laps and ended up out qualifying Graham Rahal, Joseph Newgarden, Tony Canaan matching Hinchcliffe and Castro and to the same tenth. And I, you know, it just really made me realise, like, you know, you've just always got to back yourself and if you put your heart and soul into your dreams, you can make it happen. You know, just getting the opportunity to do one IndyCar race was one thing, but to make something of it was another. Um, And yeah, there was just no substitute for the amount of blood, sweat and tears that had gone into it. Um, The race went well. It went green all 90 laps. I finished in the top 15. There was no attrition in that race. Long story short, that helped me get a start in the Indy 500 the next year. Um, They didn't have 33 cars for 2014. They had 32. I didn't have a budget. I had maybe a quarter of a budget, but IndyCar had to financially support an entry. And they basically threw half a million my way to KV racing. And that is the wing and a prayer again that I got a <laughs> start in the Indy 500. And honestly, I could go on to 2015 and 2017. I was not going to be in those races again, but drivers pulled out. Sebastian Bourdais had that massive crash in 2017. And then I got this opportunity where basically it was like the George Russell opportunity when Lewis Hamilton got COVID. I was going to be substituted into the fastest car that was going to be on pole at the Indy 500. Alonso was in the race. The car I had was sponsored by Geico. It had an onboard camera, and the stage was set. I had to make the most of it. And yeah, that that day four or five years ago was was big in my career. Um, going from last to the to first in the Indy 500. It validated just how much of an equipment-based industry this is. I didn't drive any bit different than I had any other year, and I went from last to first. And you're mixing it with all the superstars, Castro Neves, Canaan, and just simply your car allows you to do what their cars allow them to do. And, uh, yeah, I picked up uh, sponsorship then from the Bird family that have sponsored cars at the Indy 500 since the mid-'80s. and. Um, yeah, had some had some up and down runs since then. It's tough when you do the 500 as a one-off entry, but just being a part of it is is so special. I remember just making it on the grid in 2014. I was so emotional just to make it there after all the hard work and like I said, blood, sweat, and tears, I felt like I'd won the Indy 500 just making it onto the grid. It's, anyone that makes it to an elite level in this era of motorsport really, you know, has done well, in my opinion, all the kids that are trying.
0: You talked, mate, about the people who helped, the people who chipped in some bucks, the Zach Browns, the, the the people that you've met, you know, coaching them on track days and, Uh, And that's a lot of, I guess, when you take it back to a lot of people who've gone to England, went and did track days and got paid to uh, teach people to drive in performance driving and race driving. You did the same in the States. Who were some of the people along the way and how did you meet them and how did you get them to open their wallets to allow you to live your dream?
1: (laughs) Um, Okay, so... Yeah, there's a number of of, uh, scenarios or avenues that I tried. but uh, So I met a a man by the name of Brad Hollinger, who is an American that owned 20% of Williams F1. And I met him at a track day at Watkins Glen in the summer of 2015. I was there just coaching someone else. And someone was there with a whole bunch of Indy Lights cars. from the cart era uh, with you probably remember those chassis. I can't remember what the chassis were, but they had the Buick V8 motor (laughs) and um, yeah, that got my attention and quickly found that the owner driver of them was this guy, Brad, that Brad Hollinger that owns 20% of Williams F1. And yeah, just, uh, He let me jump in one of his Indy Lights cars. I'd I'd actually scored pole in Indy Lights at Watkins Glen uh, like five or six years earlier. So uh, maybe that was part of his confidence for me to jump in one of the cars. And it just created a scenario where I could coach him and build a relationship. And long story short, he ended up being involved uh, with me at the Indy 500 and in NASCAR. So... I still chat with Brad. Uh, Another paddock uh, that I explored was the historic F1 series. I saw, you know, not only how fantastic those 70s cars are, were with the Cosworth DFV engines, but all the owners were wealthy enthusiasts. And, you know, really, it was in my mind just the perfect demographic to. Network in and uh oh god, they, yeah, I've got a bit of a story with, with this. Basically, the series owner owned two cars, and for a year and a half, I was hounding him probably not the most accurate word, but yeah, I was calling him just trying to get the opportunity to drive one of his cars so that then I could use that to coach all of his clients, his entrance in the series because they were wealthy guys, you know, essentially that have all the gear, but no idea, you know, they're, 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 they never race professionally, but, um, obviously those cars are, uh, quite dangerous and, uh, yeah, you don't want to have an accident in them. So I got the opportunity to drive at the U S and Mexican Grand Prix in the series, uh, owners, 1978 arrows, uh f1 car the gold warsteiner car and uh yeah it was quite interesting basically i had he told me look you can drive the car but you got to cover your own entry fees and get you get yourself to austin and mexico and by the time i did the, the sums in my head i was thinking oh man this could cost me like 10 grand to be a part of a you know, they were historic races, but a historic parade. But then I thought, look, I need to think big picture and long-term with this. If I'm able to get in these cars and just create a good impression and then pick up some coaching gigs, which could turn into a relationship with these guys that they may want to be a part of the Indy 500 with me, especially since the history books are kind of repeating themselves and you're getting F1 guys coming and doing the Indy 500, like obviously Alonso, no one saw that happening, him pulling the pin on Monaco to come do the Indy 500. One uh, Montoya, Marcus Ericsson, Grosjean, right? There's many of them now. Uh, yeah. it it That plan worked out basically. So, I, I ended up putting the car on pole. I had to actually drive a, a very, uh, one of the best laps of my career, believe it or not, in a historic <laughs> in F1 In a historic
0: <laughs> oh,
1: Because I was up against some guys that had faster cars, you know, like early 80s Williams with full ground effects and fresh motors and, it, it created a fun deal because, it, it, it as Bobby Rahal says, historic racing is like clubbing baby seals. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and of course, so, we don't condone clubbing baby seals at all. That's not why we're laughing. But it's no, oh, it's no. like shooting fish in a barrel. It's very, it should be very easy. I,
1: I, exactly. It's 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 not a challenge. But if you've got a performance deficit in the cars you're driving, then it can make it a fun challenge. And yeah, it, it, it worked out like that. And then half the entrants in the series said to the series owner, why would you bring in a ringer on Grand Prix weekend? And, you know, obviously all those guys are wanting to stand on the podium where Hamilton and Vettel and all those guys are and have their time in the sun and not have it you know spoiled by a young ringer coming in that you know really shouldn't be driving in in their kind of club historic racing series so i quickly just said hey i'm i'm not here to be standing on the podium and spraying champagne you know i'm i'm here for the long run and having everyone on side and so i just said look i'll just start from the back of the grid and the series owner said to me, look, if you, if you can start from the pit lane here and at Mexico next week and not finish on the podium, I'll refund your entry fees. Um, <laughs> and I just thought to myself, perfect. I've, I've done already what I needed to do. I showed that I can drive the cars and not crash into the competitors because, I mean, yeah, there's guys out there that are 10 to 15 seconds a lap off the pace and don't look in their mirrors. so it's actually quite challenging not to get into an incident. Bruno Jencare actually did one of those races and had a crash with someone <laughs> So yeah you need to be careful and um, long story short I, I I saved seven grand I already achieved what I needed to do and then that created the avenue where I started coaching these guys I got a call to drive. Another one of the owners, uh, 1981 Mario Andretti Lotus at the British Grand Prix in 2019 as a support race. Never did I think I would be racing in England or Europe at Silverstone, but I got this opportunity because the guy wanted to sell the car. I got paid doing it, and now it's led on to me racing at Monaco next month in a 1975 Hill F1 car. Again, never did I think I would race at Monaco or get paid to drive historic cars. But wherever the opportunity is, I've gone. And I I never intended to be racing so many different things in my career, Indy, NASCAR, sports cars, USAC, Silver Crown, Chili Bowl, Carrera Cup, (laughs) S5000. (laughs) We'll be here all day listing everything Uh, that you've ever had a crack at. uh, Uh, I I would never have thought that or planned it, but I've just gone wherever opportunity may exist and basically just picked up the phone or gotten myself in a car to at least get a start and on the radar, um, and it seems to have worked okay. I would have loved to have enjoyed, you know, prime career in IndyCar or, or what have you, but... It, it's worked and made a living out of it um, and, yeah, just grateful for everything that uh, I've been able to enjoy on, on the other side of the world there in the States. It's obviously the land of opportunity and there really is just so much <laughs> to capitalise on there in the States.
0: Mate, we talked about stitching together a deal to do the 500 as, as a one-off entrant, obviously not a, a full-time IndyCar season. What sort of dollars are we talking about here to do a, a one-off for the Indy 500? I mean, you talked about that first year you ran with KV and, and IndyCar needed to fill the field. It's, for our listeners who perhaps aren't as IndyCar savvy, it's a traditional field of 33 cars, 11 rows of three. It's very important in the history of that race to have 33 cars on that grid not 32 not 31 same conversations going on around this year's 500 at, um, at the end of may and having enough cars to to fill that field what sort of budget would you need and obviously it, it differs on how much running you do in practice and what team you're going with but when you were ponying up um before in a 500 how many dollars are you trying to find to stitch these deals together because you did it uh six times in the indy 500 by the way For our listeners who might not get this, there are only three Australian drivers who've started the Indy 500 more times than James. I wonder if James knows who the three are. I reckon you love your history. Who are the three?
1: So it's got to be Power and Briscoe and then Mm -hmm. um, maybe uh, Jeff Brabham. Correct. Jeff. Yeah, it was.
0: Yep, yep. 14 for Will. Obviously, he started a little bit later once – Champ Car and IRL uh, unified, uh, 10 starts for Ryan and 10 starts for Jeff Brabham as well. So you would six more than Vern um, and more than Jack Brabham, more than a, a couple of other famous Aussies who've uh, made a start. I just want to throw that in because I, I think it's good perspective for our, our listeners to understand. But getting back to the cashola, James, how many bucks are you needing to find every year to launch yourself onto the, not Well, not get on the grid for the Indy 500. But to have a crack at making the grid for the Indy Five Hundred,
1: yeah. So the budgets go from about seven hundred and fifty grand to one point two million US, uh, US yes, dollars. Yes, yep, yeah, US dollars. Why is it so expensive for one race? Because of course it's not just one race. There's it's a full two week event where you're doing a week of practice. You're burning all those engine and tires consumables. Obviously, everyone, all the mechanics, personnel, uh, you go through two engines. Oh, I can't remember how many sets of tyres, but it's just tens and tens and tens of sets of tyres, maybe 30-something sets. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, like I mentioned earlier, I never had that. I, there was a year I got a seat in the Indy 500 for 150 k um, <laughs> It was... Every every time I made it into that race, it was on an absolute wing and a prayer. But times have changed in the last couple of years. The prices have gone up. There's been more drivers than ever coming from Europe um, and trying to make it in there. Um, But I've learned that you've got to work hard to put yourself to be in the right place at the right place. Put yourself in the position to be in the right place at the right time, and then things can happen because you were on the radar to be able to capitalise on an opportunity that may have arisen.
0: Would you say along the way you've had to be ruthless in some respects to to do some of these things? I mean, uh, the A one's a great example. So I think that was 2017. He's in a, a fast car. He's qualifying at Indy. He has a big crash. He busts his pelvis. He's out for the race you get the call up. Uh, Is there that awkwardness to be the first on the phone to ring a team owner when there's someone injured? There's been situations in other categories where drivers have been killed even where, okay, they're going to need another driver. Uh, What's the most desperate thing you've done or the most awkward thing or perhaps the thing you had to really push yourself to do to open up an opportunity that you might have otherwise thought, oh, this is awkward, but I've got to do it?
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, obviously when Bordet got hurt, Everyone knew that it was terrible what happened, but the show's got to go on. Um, and obviously, it's all in the details, your timing, what your relationship is with the decision maker. And fortunately, I have a great relationship with Dale. Um, I, he had already said to me, prior to Seb even having a crash, look, if we need another driver, you'll be first in. Um, just for whatever reason, I mean, in 2015, I had a teammate there at Dale Coyne that got an ear infection and he was out for the Indy 500. He lost his, his balance, I guess, when you have an issue with your ears. And so he wasn't cleared to drive. So, yeah, crazy things happened. But I knew, okay, I've, I've just got to show up to the track make sure I have my drug test done, all my IndyCar licensing done, and if an opportunity comes about, boom, I can just hit play, plug and play, and I'm ready. And unbelievably, that's what happened that year.
0: Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Redjo to oil tool. Simply type in your Redjo, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out. So at this point, in between obviously the the George period and then finding your way, are you basically couch surfing your way around your friends in the US of where you're trying to find the next opportunity? How are you making uh, a buck? How are you eating at this point? Because the, the life of the out of sort of a gig race driver is a little bit like the out of a gig actor or muso. It's kind of just trying to exist to get to the next thing. How did you get through all of that? And what did you do? And where did you go? Because I'm I'm guessing that you uh, you leaned on a lot of friends through that period.
1: Yeah. I mean, God, it half scares me to just look back and think about how I had nothing and the wing and a prayer that I just started to get a little bit of traction and running into people that I shared a cab with that ended up turning into a sponsor or whatever. But yeah, I was, um, I was, I was living with, ex-teammates in Portland, Oregon, in Huntington Beach, uh, California, yeah, with Nelson Piquet in Charlotte. Sebastian Saavedra and I shared a place in Indianapolis, um, where, yeah, which is a bit of a story because we ended up crashing into each other in an IndyCar race and it, and it didn't end too well. It's all good now, but at the time it was a bit messy. Tell me too, man, I,
0: I caught this. Um A doco on somewhere on Foxtel recently. It was about Paul Walker. It reminded me that we were having our our chat and there's a a tie-up that that you had for a time in in your racing. Of course, to those who don't know, Paul Walker, of course, was a star of the Fast and the Furious movies, a really well-known Hollywood actor who was tragically killed very, very young. But there was a legacy project and that there was a, a racing thing that he had tied yeah. up in with partners. Tell us a bit more about that and how you ended up becoming a, a part of, of all of that, that helped support you in in IMSA GT racing and in Indy 500 stuff. How did that all play together? Oh,
1: yeah. So I was coaching uh, an Indy Lights driver at the 2012 Detroit Grand Prix and Indy Lights, their race was done on Saturday um after kind of being to so many races and not racing i just thought oh, i'm not going to stay for the indycar race on sunday i'm just going to drive back to in- indianapolis but i ended up thinking no i'll go to the track it's just uh, you never know who you're going to meet and ended up sharing a cab with a guy that um was sponsoring a GT car there. I got his contact and he was one of the guys that chipped in just a little bit for my IndyCar debut there at Mid-Ohio and that rolled on to Sonoma. I did two road courses in IndyCar, Mid-Ohio and Sonoma. Um, And when I was at Sonoma, he said, hey, uh, a couple of my friends from an organization called Always Evolving which is basically a lifestyle and car enthusiast brand or club that Paul Walker and his wealth manager, Roger Rodas, um, created. And they had, I think, in some of the Fast and the Furious movies, Paul was wearing a AE, Always Evolving T-shirt. And so, yeah, I met this guy, Roger Rodas, and we had a good chat and he quickly did a sponsorship deal with me there on the IndyCar weekend. And his logo was on my helmet, um, for the next day. And, uh, after that race drove down to Southern California to Valencia, um, which is the location where Paul Walker tragically died. And, um, yeah, Roger said, Hey, we like you. I think you fit our brand well. You know, we're interested in doing some sponsorship. And then two months later, when I was going out on a Saturday night in Indianapolis, I saw pop up on my phone Paul Walker dead at 40. And that he, there was an accident in a Carrera GT at an always evolving charity event in Valencia. And uh, the driver hadn't been identified along with Paul. So I sent Roger a text saying, hey, I I heard about the accident at at the event. I hope everything's all right. And then the next morning, I found out that Roger was the driver of the car. And so pretty Hmm. crazy. I I just met Roger two months or so and he'd sponsored me before the accident. Um, Quite sad, tragic, all of above. But there was another partner in Always Evolving and he said to me, hey, you're going to be at the Long Beach Grand Prix. So this is about six months later. Um, I'd like to talk to you about the Indy 500 because I think I'd tweeted, I'm really pushing to be, pushing hard to be in the Indy 500 this year. And um, yeah, the other partner, Eric, said, I'd like to talk to you about that. Long story short, we had a always evolving sponsorship at the Indy 500 in racing in honour of Roger Rodas and Paul Walker. So, yeah, a bit of a long-winded story, but that's the background to it and just who you can meet and and what can happen putting yourself out there.
0: And you just never know who you might share a cab with somewhere along the line, who they are, oh where God. they fit into the, the grand scheme. And I hope that for, for some of our listeners who are whether they're, they're young racers who are karting or in the junior categories. I know we have a lot of industry people who listen to our podcast as well as as well as well fans of the sport that, uh, you know, some of these stories are proof that you've just got to put yourself in the position and sometimes yeah. the universe puts you there, but you've kind of got to put yourself there to a, to a degree and you never know who along the way that you, you get to meet. One of the things I, I want to talk to you too about, you've had a couple of tastes of supercars. You had a little drive of, one of FPR's cars when Will, your cousin, was there and also the 23 Red car that he drove a couple of years ago. Has there been an interest to try to do something there, co-drive at Bathurst, do something along those lines or has it been a case of you've just had so much on your plate in the States that it just doesn't quite fit?
1: Yeah, there's there's been interest. Um, yeah, it was nice to get a couple of laps on those two occasions, but it wasn't many. From memory, it was maybe two runs or so. um and obviously you know the the super two series is, is has come come of age and um you know those guys that are driving those cars you know week in week out on the same tracks everyone knows v8s are a very unique race car um yeah it's been, it's been challenging to try and get an opportunity when you're up against those guys that are driving the cars or obviously co-drivers that have been around a long time but yes there's been interest but I've been always focused on what I've been doing in America and even though you know there's been some stalls of momentum uh, you know we haven't spoken about NASCAR right like I've done 35 NASCAR races now. Never did I think that that was going to happen, but by just sticking to the plan over in the States, things have happened.
0: So stick to the plan and you never know where you might be. So let's not rule out a supercar run somewhere down the track, but it's probably more unlikely than likely if we were putting percentage terms on it. But you're right. NASCAR was where I was going next. So, You've had a running cup the last few years, but I think it was, what, 16? I think you you had a crack at a road course in the Xfinity Series. So at that point, had you identified that, okay, the IndyCar thing here, I can keep trying to do the 500, and you did do that a few more times, but that NASCAR, the road course ringer, that might be a pathway to, to get some more steers and get some more deals going?
1: Yes, and so... It, they're just such different worlds, IndyCar and NASCAR and sports car. There's very little crossover there or crossover of personnel. Maybe in sports car and IndyCar there is, but not NASCAR. It's just so different. But I thought, look, I, I want to try and get myself a start here. So I called an Xfinity team. I got a really good deal. I quickly learned that there's the biggest... Equipment disparity in world motorsport, believe it or not, in NASCAR when it's called stock car racing. (laughs) I mean, there's cars out there, no joke, that are five to six six seconds a lap off. And it's just everything, engine, brakes, uh, all the components. But that is the dynamic. So, yeah, I chose Road America as my first race and qualified in the middle of the field, maybe P18, two and a half seconds off pole and it's just like, what? What is this? Like I've won here. <laughs> I've won here in GT. I've been on pole here in IMSA. Like I, this. what's going on here? Um, But you've got to do the best with what you got and manage to get up to P7. Um, And then long story short, that's what helped me get in talks with Joe Gibbs Racing. And I came back the next year and dominated the race, won the first stage, worked with Chris Gabehart as a crew chief, who is now Denny Hamlin's crew chief in the Cup Series. And, yeah, he was really good to work with, gave me a great car. And, um, unfortunately, we got taken out of the race, but we finished fourth in another race. Um, Again, got moved you, every race I've done, I've gotten moved out of the way. I was running in second and battling Sam Hornish for a win at Mid Ohio. But, um, yeah, came back the next year in 2018 and nearly won again. I got turned around out of P2 at Road America with a couple of laps to go. But then the opportunity came about basically during COVID to get a start racing NASCARs on ovals. And it wasn't in trucks. It wasn't in Xfinity. It was in Cup. And there was no practice or no qualifying. And I was going to tracks that I'd never been to before and just jumping in the car and doing my first NASCAR race in the Cup Series, having never turned a lap, taking the green flag. And I just thought, screw it. What have I got to lose? I've driven many races. I've driven a NASCAR before. I've driven cars on ovals before. I'm, I've got enough experience now that I'm not going to go into the first corner and swap ends. So I'll just build up to it. The races are so long. They're three, four, 500 miles. It'll be fine. Um, NASCAR was saying to me, are you sure you want to do this? Like, no one's ever done this before. I'm like, not really, but this is the opportunity I got. And I was driving with the rock bottom team. So underfunded. I mean, you're talking budgets of $4 million a year against the top team spending 30 to 40 So on road courses, we're four seconds a lap off. At the Daytona road course, my quickest lap of the race was four seconds off Chase Elliott. Yet I'd found myself on pole there at the Rolex 24 in GT. So that's the dynamic. But just being part of the Cup Series was awesome. Never did I think I would drive in the Southern 500 at Darlington and Talladega 500, Daytona, Martinsville, all of them. Bristol, just amazing. I really enjoyed it. And um, the uh, E-Series created a very good opportunity for me to, to, to be able to show something considering it wasn't really possible to To show anything on the real track um, that you could be validated. The e-series did. They had five races live on Fox Sports, all 40 Cup drivers, equal car performance. And somehow I found myself winning that and getting interviewed by, you know, Mike Joy and Jeff Gordon (laughs) and all those guys. And Twitter's just exploding. Everyone's like, "What the hell's going on here? This guy's horrible in real life. He gets out 17 times and now he's winning in this. Like, what's going on here?" It was pretty <laughs> fun. It was pretty funny to see it all. But uh, for, for for one point there, I thought I was going to get some momentum. I was chatting with Jeff Gordon, Denny Hamlin, Kyle Busch. I actually got offered some deals, but still you have to bring over a million dollars and I've never had that. So things have stalled a bit in NASCAR. I do have a race confirmed with Joe Gibbs at the end of the year on a road course, but it's just one race. So, I mean, it's better than nothing, but I can tell you, I was really enjoying NASCAR. I I, I loved it. I loved the way they race. Um, the ovals didn't bother me. I wasn't missing road courses, just getting the most out of the car and the whole show that it is and the fan how much the fans appreciate it um racing in front of big grandstands and the big grand show that it is it was yeah an amazing experience so uh yeah we'll see we'll see where nascar ends up for me but um yeah honestly it's just changed so much in the last 5 10 years since since ambrose was there it's um yeah just the teams don't have the sponsor dollars and that they used to Mm, yeah, it's a very different world, not just with the different cars that
0: they've debuted uh, this year, but they've gone dirt racing, they've gone to the Coliseum in LA, there's all sorts of stuff. So they're clearly trying to recapture the glory days or find the next era of glory days. Another thing I want to cover off with you, mate, um, some of the, um, the wealthy amateurs that you've met along the way who have great car collections or great track day cars I find it pretty – I don't think I've spoken to anyone on this podcast who has driven a 2003-spec Ferrari Formula One car. Tell us how that came to be, what it was like. Tell us the story because it's a – you know, there's not too many Australians that have ever raced for Ferrari or driven something of that level. Tell me some more because it's mind-blowing. I mean, it's mind-blowing some of the stuff that we've talked about that you've managed to, to get your way into, but this one's a
1: whole nother level. <laughs> yeah, that was – Oh my god, that was just the most incredible experience, but so bittersweet because it was just five laps, but in a full, you know, full spec 2003 Ferrari F1 car. Um, so yeah, some of the owners that I raced uh, alongside in the historic F1 series with the 70s cars, one of them owned this 2003 car and so i'd built a bit of a real relationship up with him and they had an event down at homestead just south of where i live in miami and um yeah managed to jump in the car and get uh, an out lap three hot laps and an in lap and i just sent it as much as i could but It was, I mean, to run those cars, they have to have the whole crew from Italy. So you have a lot of retired full-time race mechanics on the car that I was driving was actually Schumacher's chief mechanic from his era there in the early 2000s. And a lot of these guys obviously get tired and don't want to be traveling the world anymore, but they're the guys that are working on the car all the tire blankets, everything. It was insane. And I, I remember going down the pit lane and just being like, all right, okay, another race car, whatever. And then just hitting the pit lane speed button and gassing it a little bit, like not a lot, just a little bit. And the power to weight ratio of that thing just kicked my ass. Just, my head just slammed backwards, like scary how much torque it had. Just I'm like, oh, my God, okay, this is what I was waiting for, a proper race car. And the agility and how late you can brake and sense of speed and the sound. And, oh, my God, it was just the coolest thing ever. I just couldn't stop smiling and, like, hugging this guy and thanking him for the opportunity to drive this thing. It was just a privilege. It really was.
0: It's an amazing thing to be able to to do something like that. Am I right in remembering that I saw on the socials last year that you were in Abu Dhabi for the last, grand prix of the year or you were around the f1c
1: yeah so um in recent years probably got yeah it was 2015 don't ask me how but became a very good friend of max verstappen we met at a red bull party in 2015 and just got along really well and he gave me his number and we kept in touch and hung out again the next year in 2016 when I was racing the historic F1 car there at Austin and Mexico and <laughs> I got invited to his place at Monaco at the end of 2016 and 17. And, yeah, just such a great person behind the superstar that he is. So, yeah, I've been to many races and um, get hooked up with a paddock pass and we have some fun, you know, when we can. Uh and yeah went to abu dhabi to be there to see see him win the world championship and yeah partied on the yacht until 6am it was it was amazing to be there honestly it was uh yeah pretty pretty special
0: what what do our listeners perhaps don't know about max verstappen is he what you see on tv is what you get or is there a different side to him that you've you've seen that perhaps we have uh,
1: Uh, no, for the, for the, for the most part, that's exactly what he's like. He's very considerate. Um, obviously he wants to win and he's a young man that's growing and maturing in front of hundreds of millions of people watching him. It's not easy. I think a lot of people forget that there's never been someone as young as him having to grow up and, and, and mix it with the grown men. And, um, yeah, he's 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 an ultimate competitor, but just extremely kind and considerate. And I, I I said to 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 Yoss when I first met him, I just said, "Hey, you've done a really good job raising him. He's just such a nice, considerate person." Um, and he hasn't changed. He hasn't changed one bit. I think I was actually just watching the last uh, episode of Drive to Survive last night. I'm a bit behind the times, but I saw Christian. Horner said that Max is the exact same person than when he showed up in the team seven or eight years ago, and that's very accurate.
0: And where were you when it all went down? That last
1: lap in Abu Dhabi. Uh, where, where were you standing? Where were you sitting? I was on a yacht by the hotel section, um, and just like everyone, just didn't just so excited and in disbelief and. Couldn't believe that Hamilton left the door open, right? Like you've got the most aggressive driver of all time on brand new softs, and he left the door open. <laughs> so obviously Max was going to go for it, and uh, I've watched that last lap a couple of times, and he did such a good job defending down those next two straights. There was no way Hamilton was going to get back by him, but yeah, it was obviously a pretty controversial finish. But you know, when the race got Restarted. That's when it was going to be won or lost. And um, you know, he won it on track. He didn't. He didn't finish second and then get promoted to first. Like, kind of a lot of people seem to kind of take it that way that he was gifted the win. You know, he he raced his way to the front there. So, yeah. Now that was that was obviously a moment in history that we're all going to remember, isn't it?
0: Big time. Uh, it's probably. You know, we, we talk Senna Prost, but Verstappen-Hamilton and that last race is definitely now in that conversation in Formula One history books that we'll be writing about, talking about um, for, for many years to come. I'm, I'm totally, totally sure of that. Um, I've got some questions from some of our, our readers. We'll zip onto them in a sec. For this year, though, you mentioned there's some historic stuff. There's a one-off with Joe Gibbs. Is there anything else cooking for you? What What else is
1: keeping you busy at the moment? Um. Yeah. I mean, doing a couple of things away from racing as well. Obviously I'm not, you know, 21 anymore and the time comes that you need to start diversifying yourself. So, you know, starting to put a bit of time into the whole in investments and, and, and other ways. So real estate in, in Miami and so on is something that uh, I got to start in fortunately before COVID broke out and the big inflation. Um, Racing-wise, um, yeah, I haven't got more confirmed than the historic race and uh, uh, the NASCAR race. Maybe there's a possibility to do some more S5000. I would like to after the way the, the Grand Prix just played out. It just wasn't my weekend. We just had some crazy mechanicals and had to start all the races at the back of the grid, but the racer in me, wants to come back to S5000 and execute a good solid weekend. So the events racing on the Gold Coast or um, Adelaide could, could be an opportunity as ever. It needs to be funded. So, you know, unless that happens, it won't happen, but we'll see. We'll see. I'm, I'm open to anything, maybe doing some USAC stuff. There could be an opportunity to do that. Drove a silver crown race or two in the past and, those cars are just crazy, like 800 horsepower, and, oh, my God, it's, it's fun. It's really fun. Funny you should
0: mention that because that actually forms part of our National Motor Racing Museum Couch Racer questions where our listeners and fans get to fire in a, a few questions, and it's thanks to our mates at the museum at Mount Panorama who are open six days a week. They're not open Tuesdays, James. Next time you're in Bathurst, don't go on a Tuesday Because they're not open. The doors won't open. You've made doors open in your career that other people were not thinking were possible. They won't open the doors for you, even you. (laughs) They're closed that day. You can't go in. Uh, Six days a week, check their website, uh, the museum's Bathurst website or the National Motor Racing Museum Facebook page for further details. So, James, David Parker's question here, he says, ask him where and why he got the nickname Billy Black Flag. Is there a story here? What's this about?
1: Oh, my God. Oh, this is funny. So I was doing state series formula Ford. It was my first year of racing and we were racing at Sandown um, and we had a driver's meeting before the final race on Sunday at, on pre-grid and the marshal or Clark, of course, whoever it was, said to us, you know, there's to be no breaking of traction when you... Drive up onto the grid because there's marshals there and yeah, safety and so on. But going back 20 years now to 18, 20 years, that's when things started to become a little more safer, right? Maybe 20, 30 years. So they were starting to enforce that rule. So I drove up on the grid. I didn't do a burnout. Um, we took the start. I got a good start. I was battling for the lead with Shane Price each lap, typical Sandown Formula Ford slip streaming race down the two drag strips. And uh, then the black flag came out for me. And I was like, think, I was thinking, I haven't jumped the start. I haven't passed under yellow. I don't have a meatball flag. And I know I didn't break traction or do a burnout coming onto the grid. I'm not coming in, (laughs) (laughs) which I can say this like 18 years later because after the race, I got in trouble for just completely ignoring it for like 10 laps. But that is where Billy Black Flag came about. So I won the race. It didn't stick. They took it away from me and they said that I broke traction coming up onto the grid and uh, I didn't. I did not. So I don't know, you know, my thoughts at the time was one of the marshals, you know, kind of wasn't being too nice to me because my dad was the promoter of Sandown or something like that. And I never, ever as a young kid walked around, thought I was above anyone or could do things at Sandown that other people couldn't because my dad was the promoter. Never did I ever. And that's, that was part of my, motive, my my thought process when I was in the car uh that I'm not gonna pit here because I know I haven't done anything wrong. But of course, what you think versus what the stewards think is two separate things. But I was young. I was a teenager and uh I don't know. I it was my first unofficial race win. So and important to me to win at Sandown. Um given my family history there. I didn't want to lose that opportunity when I felt I shouldn't have lost it. But Whatever, I was a kid. That was half a lifetime ago.
0: Well, if you do make it back for some more S5000 racing, I'd encourage all our listeners to go up and say hello to Billy Black Flag oh, no. when he's driving around. Come on. They're going to call Thanks, you Billy David. if you come back racing.
1: <laughs> Thanks to David Parker.
0: Yeah. Uh, Craig condo has got a great question. Can you describe for our listeners going into Turn 1 at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway in an IndyCar car at basically three hundred and fifty kilometers an hour, it's yeah. Nuts.
1: So yeah, I mean, it's even more than that. It's three hundred and eighty. The quickest I think I've done in the speed trap was two thirty nine point seven. I saw it pop miles up. Miles an Twitter. hour, yeah, yeah, miles an hour. Sorry. Um, uh, initially, you you're a bit nervous. You don't trust that the downforce is going to hold you. As Fernando Alonso said, he said your right foot has a brain of its own. You want to go full throttle, but it kind of just cracks off there. But eventually, you do enough laps and you get so close to being flat that you've just got to go flat. You create more downforce and the car feels okay. Um, So much of Indy is the car because when you're doing nearly 400Ks, any minuscule imbalance in the car is going to be magnified more than, you know, twice as much as, as a normal maybe race car. So if the car's handling well, in, in some ways it's easy, it's seamless. Um, you've always got to be, you know, on the ball and not drop a wheel into the marbles and touch the curbs on the bottom of the track. We've seen drivers crash. I remember Alonso did that in 2020 right in front of me, touched the curb and crushed in practice. Um, But so much of it is how the car is behaving. And there's for every driver that's driven on ovals, when the car's not nice, oh my God, it's just like you're driving around with a knife in your back. You're not enjoying it. You don't want to do it anymore. But then you can come in, And they make a change to the car and you go out there, it's easier to drive. You're going faster and you're relaxed. So, yeah, it it feels quick. But because the track is so big, all the grandstands, it it kind of takes the speed sensation away. You don't really know how quick you're going until you're crashing, to be honest. (laughs) Um, That's how it is. Yeah. And I had a full like Indy 500 style crash there in 2018 when I had uh, a, a pretty, a very slow car. We weren't going to make the field on bump day. We were 33rd or 34th quickest. We had to trim it, take the downforce out of it to try and make up for, yeah, the lack of car speed. The car had um, so much of it's the components or the, friction reduction work that's done in the uprights and gearbox and so on. And when you're a third car, you've got the third best stuff or even the fifth best stuff because the primary cars, their backup equipment's probably going to be the third and fourth best, best stuff. So, yeah, it sends you down um, basically a, hi- a historically dangerous avenue at in Indianapolis where slow cars have got to trim out more than you normally would to try and make up the speed, trim out the downforce and, you know, the tires are a new, you, you've got to do a full lap run and the tires are constantly degrading after each corner and the right rear tire is heating up. Um, and if you just have a little bit of a headwind and the car's just a bit light on downforce, there's literally nothing you can do to save it from spinning sometimes. So, yeah, I had, had had a big hit at 230 miles an hour. But to be honest, I was amazed at how much energy those safer barriers absorbed. It barely hurt me. And I slammed that thing. I, I was all four wheels up in the air. I was bruised a bit, a bit sore, but I didn't have a concussion. My leg hurt. It actually hurt quite a lot for a couple of minutes afterwards. Mostly because I didn't have the right padding in the car because I'm not a full-season driver and you get all those fine details down pat. But for the most part, the safety is amazing. It really is.
0: It's incredible to see and know how far uh, safety, particularly at in Indy and in IndyCar racing, has, has come along. It's been quite amazing. Uh, NRE Productions via Twitter, what's the best part about your time in NASCAR racing?
1: It, it would be it would be two things: gaining respect out of those drivers. You know that they're the world of outlaws; those guys. It's it's like the automotive WWF. Um, <laughs> and to get their respect, guys like Kyle Busch and Denny Hamlin and and all of that, it, you've got to play your cards right. You really do. Um, and I, it just. I got some satisfaction out of getting res- their respect. That that was a big thing because they're such big names and they've got such power and and following and um and then also just uh, being a part of those races, Southern 500 being right up against the wall there at Darlington and um Talladega 500 in the pack and uh, Again, there was no practice or qualifying. It was like watching all those onboard cameras or i racing, but you're just thrown into the real thing, um, and and doing it well. You know, not creating a crash or any of that. Just doing it all on on a fly and on the fly, backing your your experience and your judgment. I had to be brave again. I was driving into situations I'd never done before. There was not a lap of practice, but. Um, yeah, just running well with the equipment that I had, I, I got my team's best short track and road course results on uh, at Martinsville and Daytona Road Course, and so I just did whatever I could to make a good impression on and off the track. Um, and certainly, being a bit older helped with that as well, because when you're young, you know you're just you're very eager and you don't quite understand sometimes that less is more and or more is less. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Eventually, eventually we all get there in life to, uh, to to get that lesson, but you've got to live the lessons before it to get to that lesson anyway. So um, yes, thanks for answering some of those questions, but I know our our listeners were really keen with, with some of them that they sent through before we go to, I've got to say congratulations too, mate. We loved your Dick Johnson NASCAR throwback livery that you ran to the red coat Thunderbird that Dick drove back in. I think it was 1990 that he he ran back in the day. You, you ran it with the, the red livery and the same kind of styling. Um, you, although you've been in the States for pretty much half your life now, you mm-hmm. haven't forgotten... I remember talking to you as a kid and you you had a lot of love for Australian racing and you knew the history very well. So we thought that was pretty cool too, that you were able to take a bit of DJ on your NASCAR journey. That was pretty cool.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was fitting. Um, obviously, Will had driven for Dick 15 years ago and um, Dick's one of fewer Aussies that gave NASCAR a go. And, of course, there's that quite entertaining video on YouTube with him... Uh, Ending up in in the tire barrier at Sonoma, and then picking up his his radio with his the good old Aussie you know accent and frustration and vocabulary vocabulary. It was it was very funny. Um, they actually talked about it on the telecast.
0: <laughs> Hopefully you didn't replicate it. That's definitely <laughs> not required.
1: Yeah, <laughs> oh, God, I tell you, NASCAR, you're gonna have thick skin there. The amount of uh, swear words and abuse that comes from other spotters and drivers and it's just you know a bit of a recipe for disaster when you think about it you've got 40 horsepower stock cars in a bull ring and 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 there's no rules everyone's pretty much allowed to have a free-for-all of this if you listen to radioactive on um, on youtube where they pick up all the drivers' radios from from the races. It's <laughs> it's very entertaining. The stuff that's said uh, by the drivers about each other or about what a shitbox that car is or whatever. It's it's so it's very entertaining.
0: I have gone down a few rabbit holes on YouTube that have cost me a couple of hours when it comes to NASCAR uh, on boards and compilations of radios. <laughs> it's good stuff, James. Thank you so much, mate, for for taking some time to run us down. Uh, what you've been up to in the states, the some of the great stories of, of how you've been able to do what you've done. I'm sure you've got some more chapters left to write in your your motor racing story just now and uh, in the next couple of years ahead. So thanks for sitting down. This it's been good to uh, to actually do it, and hopefully there's some some more stuff to come in the next little
1: while. Yeah, thanks, Noons. I really appreciate it. Um, just just giving life my best shot as everyone should. So um, yeah, look forward to talking to you next time
0: there you have it my chat with James Davis and I think there's a lot in there that I didn't know and I'm thinking there's a lot in there that you didn't know but you know now because you listened to the v8 sleuth podcast powered by repco thanks for listening we really appreciate your support by the way before we go the castrol motorsport news podcast every tuesday with andrew van lewin and Stefan Bartholomew. subscribe so you don't miss an episode i'm back every thursday with repco supercars weekly and of course the v8 sleuth podcast powered by repco on every wednesday uh, head to our website to v8sleuth.com.au plenty of news plenty of content plenty of stuff to keep you entertained if you're into all things motorsport and our online bookshop the website address bookshop.vhsleuth.com.au the link is in our show notes uh, it's the place to go to order our books pre-order our holden racing team car history book racing dvds full bathys model cars prints books there's something for everybody get in and do some early father's day or indeed christmas shopping or you know what bugger it just spoil yourself it's definitely a place to visit. Jump on the website, bookshop.vhsleuth.com.au. Head to our regular website too, vhsleuth.com.au. That's where you can subscribe to our newsletter. Follow us on the socials. Keep those emails and keep those notes coming on the DMs via Instagram and Facebook and the like. We'd love to hear from you with your, your thoughts on what we do, what you'd love to hear on the podcast, what you like, what you don't like. we love to hear from you right through our social media accounts. Anyway, that's me done. That's us done the V8 podcast powered by Repco. Hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you haven't heard all the other episodes, have a listen to the back catalogue and I'll chat to you soon. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number 2 and oil and find out.